Dodge Media Productions is a proud sponsor of Expose Hope, a 501c3 organization dedicated to showing the members of the adult entertainment industry that regardless of where they are at, they are cared for. Expose Hope provides gifts, resources, and time to individuals without judgment. Dodge Media Productions is committed to helping Expose Hope to reach their goals of ending trafficking. You can support their efforts by donating today. Follow the link in the show notes. You're listening to Dodge Movie Podcast. Your hosts are Christy and Mike Dodge, the founders of Dodge Media Productions. We produce films and podcasts, so this is a podcast about films. Join them as they share their passion for filmmaking. Welcome back, everybody, to the Dodge Movie Podcast. This is our final episode for the month of October. This is episode 141, and we are talking about the 1995 film Leaving Las Vegas. We watched this film on Max, so if you have a subscription for that, you too can enjoy it with no extra charge. This was directed by Mike Figgis, who also did 1988 Stormy Monday, to the 2000 Time Code, and the 2012 Suspension of Disbelief. It stars Nicolas Cage, Elizabeth Shue, Richard Lewis, Stephen Weber, French Stewart, Arlie Ermey, Mariska Hargitay, and Laurie Metcalf. Now, those are almost like Easter eggs for you to, to, yeah. to hunt for. Yeah. They're not necessarily main cast. We just are watching it and kind of with a almost 30 year look back are mm-hmm. like, oh, my God, look, there's so and so. The DP for this film was Declan Quinn. He did a lot of concert videos. He did 1998's One True Thing, 2000's 28 Days. So 2008's Rachel Getting Married. And uh, we did talk about Admission with Tina Fey in 2013. He also was the DP on that. And most recently was the DP on the Hamilton film that they did that they released on Disney+. Plus. Do you remember that? In yes. 2000. The writer was John O'Brien, who in 1991, coincidentally considering this movie, wrote for the Rugrats. <laughs> Isn't that yeah. amazing? He like, wrote Chucky. Yeah, he did like, especially early on, he did like 30 episodes or something. And sadly, John died in 94, two weeks after this film had been signed and was going to be a movie. He was 33 at the time and he died from suicide. So it's just as I was watching this and doing some research and trivia and understanding that writer, it just, it got more. I mean, the movie already has a very sad note and then you hear more of this and it just gets more sad and more sad. It's pretty tough. Um, This film is about Ben Sanderson, a Hollywood screenwriter who lost everything because his because of his alcoholism. He arrives in Las Vegas to drink himself to death. There he meets and forms an uneasy friendship and non interference pact with prostitute Sarah. And I think what that part is, is there's a scene where she asks him to move in because she's feeling like she wants to, I believe, take care of somebody and wants to have purpose in her life of helping somebody. And that, and so he kind of says yes, but then he says, but you can never, ever, ever ask me to quit drinking. And she agrees, which. Yeah. No, it's a sad I scene. Had, after, after the movie's completed, I asked the question about, why she would do this. The motivation wasn't clear to me. You advanced the theory that 
she wanted to save him or to take care of a person. And that certainly fits with her behavior. However, unfortunately, I don't feel like the film uh, made that argument. I mean, you you made that argument and, and, it, and it holds water. I just don't feel like it took that away from the film. I, I found that character confusing to me. And I also kind of found his character a little confusing as well. I think, to be fair, I watched an interview and Elizabeth said that's why. So I was taking it from the actor's point of view, which we know when they get in character, they kind of. But also, I think the scene where he's moved in, is it his birthday? She buys him presents and he she buys him a shirt and then she buys him a flask. Right. And that's that she's she's admitting that she's going along with his plan. Mm -hmm. And he says, I think I found the right girl. And it's just this really sad, like it's not a joyous. I mean, you almost see sadness in her eyes to me that she knows he, she's enabling him. And she's, I think, happy to be somebody who somebody else is fond of. You know, like he says, I found the right girl like that. You would think that would be something you would want to hear from your partner. But the fact that it's because you're enabling my disease and kind of helping me along that's, that that yeah. would make you feel great. Yeah. All right. So there's no taglines for this film. Nicolas Cage researched his character by binge drinking and visiting many hospitalized career alcoholics and Elizabeth Shue associated with prostitutes and interviewed them on the strip in Las Vegas. Although all of the solo scenes of Sarah when she's by herself and she's speaking and it's kind of unclear who she's speaking to. You don't know at first, is it like a friend then? And it, it pops in and out at different times in the film. One could say, you know, could guess, is she talking to a therapist? The film never specifies. Those are actually shoes, wardrobe, hair, and makeup tests that were shot prior to production. And Figgis used them in the final edit because he felt that they strengthened the narrative of the film against the initial wishes of the producers. And this means that Shu is potentially the only actress ever to be Oscar nominated for her wardrobe tests. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, you know, at least here in the U S when you have a person uh, speaking introspectively while laying on a leather couch, it says therapist, right? Yeah. It was unclear, but that's, I believe. That's what I took away from Mm -hmm. it. Yeah, me too. All right. Kick us off with the, your pickup line for leaving Las Vegas to a wonderful film. Interesting. Who yeah. says it? I'm a character named Peter. I think it's either Steven Weber or Richard Lewis. It's at a oh, dinner right? and they're celebrating a, a screenplay. Presumably that Nick Cage's character of Ben wrote that's never specified, but I, I got the implication there. Yeah, no, that's, that's good. And it, he, this scene is, it just kicks, it drops you into the, what's going the conflict and what's going on because he is almost begging Richard Lewis for money to go get alcohol. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's probably realistic for an alcoholic, right? They have no shame when it comes to their disease. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's part of the disease, right? Yeah. You noticed we then cut to him like just rolling down the aisles of a liquor store, putting, an unreal amount of alcohol into a shopping cart. Who goes uses a shopping cart in a liquor store? You usually walk in, well, you buy a bottle or two, you pay for it, you walk out. 
I was thinking of that, like the, the person in the store, are they thinking, woohoo, what a great night, look at the profit margin, or are they thinking, dude, what size party do you really want? Because generally, I think if we're having a big party like your film premiere, you, you, you order it separately and, you know, they deliver a case of vodka and, you know, instead of 12 individual bottles. So um, that was a sign to the viewer that he really has quite the problem. Yeah. So anyway, you notice during that scene that it was a sting song and there's three sting songs right. from the film and Mike Figgis and Sting were friends. And so he said, hey, would you write me? Right. I believe that Mr. Figgis did some videos for the police and he definitely directed The Rhythmatist, which was the uh, documentary that Stuart Copeland, the drummer from The Police, made. Mm-hmm. So it pays to have some... Uh, Friends with, you know, the right. musical talents. Right. Uh, no word whether Sting wrote those songs from his penthouse suite at the Arconia. So. <laughs> yes, this is true. The limited budget dictated that the production and Figgis end up filming in Super 16 millimeter and composed his own score. He also wrote some of the music. He said, we didn't have any money and we weren't pretending to be something we weren't. We sh- couldn't shut down the strip to shoot. Yeah. And so Cage actually recounted that he found the use of the 60 millimeter liberating as an actor because, and I saw an interview where he kind of talked about it further. He said when it's a smaller camera and he kind of mimicked as if it was being handheld, he said it's easier to kind of like portray your character as opposed to the camera person and the director being behind this big behemoth of you know, kind of like a camera with the reels and everything. So he enjoyed that it was on 16 millimeter. That's an interesting perspective. And I want to approach that from, from both directions. I mean, one, perhaps in support of Mr. Cage's position, which by the way, he's a far better actor than I am. So <laughs> I, want to, I was watching another film for the podcast. Uh, stay tuned and you'll hear about it, viewers. And two of the characters were having a conversation and they moved past a bar and I, from the way it was shot, I could tell that they were inches from the camera that was on a dolly track. And this comes to, so you, you on the one hand, you would say, okay, well, you could see, because they're acting in this very constrained physical space, which is also drastically different than the space in the film, right? Mm-hmm. However, I return to, uh, yes, my dear, it's called acting. That, that unfortunately is kind of part of the, the job. And we actually just recently were talking to another uh, filmmaker about Christian Bale's famous tirade. And he was a bit more sympathetic to Bale. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, I could see, depending on the scene, you know, it, you maybe as an actor, you would really need to get to a certain spot. I'm thinking, uh, you know, you go to a, a ridiculous extreme. Maybe it's a scene where your child has died and somebody is making fart noises behind the camera, obviously. But there is a certain part that that is the weirdness of a set, that there are anywhere from two to maybe dozens of people standing around looking at you pretending to be somebody. And, you know, in like I said, a very artificially constructed set, whereas the actor, they have to, you know, have kind of a different world than really exists in you know, in their mind. So it is difficult. So again, maybe Cage is correct 
I, I, I don't know not having been an actor, but my follow-up question is, does that mean that the nuns in that shot were really on the strip and they just <laughs> it, like included them as extras? I think so. That's awesome. I know. There's Sister Mary something or others out there with a great story. Was there anything as far as the other cinematography and writing that you took note of? For a movie that's called Leaving Las Vegas, the first mention of Las Vegas was 16 minutes into the film. The opening scene, right, are these two Hollywood weasels played by Steven Weber and Richard Lewis, of all people, who's more, I know him as a comedian, right? That was a little interesting casting there. And there's a, a point where when Ben first gets to Las Vegas, he there's a pause before he goes into the hotel room. And I interpreted as he was kind of summoning his strength because he knew, according to his plan, this is where he would die. Mm. Um, so there was like this moment there, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. So, you know, we earlier talked about Pretty Woman and there are uh, some rules that she, she gives Edward, such as no kissing. Mm-hmm. This film, Sarah, also has some rules but slightly different and perhaps a little bit more realistic. Mm-hmm. And speaking of realism, I, I, I know very little about that line of work, but I suspect that the incident with the college bros is ever-present danger yes. for the, those individuals who work that. And, and so that was kind of tough. I averted my gaze, but luckily I think... As far as that goes, it was relatively short. They did, yeah, they did more of alluding to a crime. I will say for those, because I don't want to harm anybody else, at 36 minutes, a pimp slaps her and pulls a knife, and she pulls a knife on him, and at 134, there is a rape scene that Mike is being trying to be polite. It's alluded to, we know what happened, but it's not graphic. Yeah. Thankfully and, for all involved. We were talking on an earlier podcast about gratuitous nudity. Mm-hmm. There is a point where I think we get a couple frames of side boob of Elizabeth Shue, mm-hmm. but it really, I don't, it didn't strike me as tawdry mm-hmm. or exploitive. And I think the rape scene, as hard as it is, also was, is I, I think it serves the story. And I think it was done in a tasteful way and probably, hopefully, wasn't traumatic for the cast and crew. Yep. So, but, you know, that is unfortunately, I think, part of that life. Yeah. Just like Ben, Nick Cage's character, shows the realities of alcoholism. Mm -hmm. So not really an uplifting film. Yeah, it was fascinating. Oh, I wrote here. So this film was, I'll just say, was shot in four weeks I saw an interview with Nick and he said that he watched the the famous drunks of filmmaking oh, wow. and I thought it was interesting because he mentioned Arthur as oh, yeah. one of them and yeah. he said he took little bits from all of them and what he took from Arthur was his inability to maintain a level volume. Oh, right. And I, I thought it's just, I'm so fascinated and inspired by the level of you know, kind of research and right. methodical. The thought process. Th- yes, you know. and how much they put into their performances. It's just, it's very admirable that they would, you know, watch many films to get nuances. And he said he had, he hired somebody to basically be drunk on set so that he could watch 
how this person behaved. Right. And he walks up to the bar and he says, and one of the things that this guy, he would just, he says he would just ramble and he would just say things just kind of inconsequentially. And he said, you don't kick the bar, you lean into the bar. That's one. He took a direct quote from the guy that was lying in his trailer (laughs) under the table. Right. And then he says, it's not. In Vino Veritas? Yeah. Well, Vino Veritas, it's en Vino Veritas. Like that's another thing that this guy said. Right. So I just thought it was interesting, especially since we had just talked about Arthur, that that was what Nick considered a famous, you know, one of the famous famous drunk. Yeah. Yeah. But I thought this captured like the shakes really, really well. Right. And the desperation of, I just got to get even again. I got to drink to, you know. Right. They showed the transformation of the alcoholic of when he woke up and he was basically non-functional to once he had, you know, like you said, uh, get right, he was able to kind of function again. I, I did make a note for hair and makeup, in particular the makeup artist, that they made him look dissipated and, and pale and sweaty and just mm-hmm. ill, right? Yeah, Which it matches looked, his, his right. the character state. Right, yeah. Like, it shows him drinking in the shower, which I'm sure right. that, like like you said, just when you wake up in the morning, you're just trying to get even again. That, that right. you know, some of us grab a cup of coffee to wake up and, and many alcoholics maybe grab a bottle to kind right. of wake up. And, and I think to balance out that realism, I think um, the depiction of what a sex worker would look like was maybe a little unrealistic. Elizabeth Shue is, is very photogenic and... And she definitely had the wardrobe and the hair and makeup. She I mean, she looked like she was a very high high end. You would think. I mean, I don't again know uh, this yeah. world, but she looked. I'm, I'm okay with that. All right, fair enough. Um, she looked like pretty woman level good looking. Right. And I'm not sure again that streetwalkers are necessarily able to devote that amount of care to their hair and makeup. And also, it's a tough life, and you do get beat up apparently. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but it, it sells movies. Yeah. So the Rolex that Ben wears in the film was actually John O'Brien's watch. So yeah, the actual writer. Yeah. And I looked it up at the time when he goes to pawn it. I don't know watches. Mm-hmm. So I think it would have been like 40 or 50 grand at that time. And he gets 500 for it. So, I mean, I think that means something. If you know watches, you know how, how desperate he is. But I think I didn't. I had to look that up. Although it is odd that a watch would be worth that much now that you, everyone's phone ha, uh, has the time on it. But I guess it's just purely jewelry. It used to actually be a functional time. There are some device. people that are still very, you know, there's a couple yeah. comedians I know of are huge watch people and cage is a watch person, but right. he says he likes all mechanical things, things that move. Okay. And that's so like such a cage. It, it really is. <laughs> but then why isn't he with Keanu racing motorbikes and rally cars? He's a car guy. Uh, he so better be if he likes things that he move. He mentioned what I think it was a car from Moonstruck he wish he had. Right. But apparently, not, doesn't he have a motorcycle or two? Perhaps. I don't know. If you're listening to the podcast, Mr. Cage, we can talk about getting you involved <laughs> in motorsport. Although he's too busy working to, to go racing. Under sound, I have. I didn't like it, the opening music. It competed with the dialogue too much. Yeah. It got a little bit better. But I wonder if that's just a nod to the budget, but I can't believe that. Well, 
the director was a music guy. He wrote the music himself. So maybe he's like, no, bring it up in the mix. Right. Maybe. I mean, I wrote a great song. And speaking of that, he, he was a friend of Sting, like I said before, and he did ask him to sing a few songs. Although he also, Mike Figgis wrote some music and the producer, Lila Kaze told him that she didn't like Sting and didn't want the recordings in the film. And Figgis said, okay, I've written an alternative. It's a German opera about death and he would want to sing it himself. And she goes, okay, we'll go with Sting. Well, that's a great, a great <laughs> trick to use on a producer. Right? I thought so too. How about any head trauma in this film? Is there any head trauma? When we're dealing with somebody who maybe is a little altered, so they don't right, have their faculties, right. their balance is maybe a little off. So he definitely gets headbutted by the biker boyfriend in the biker bar. He falls at the pool late in the film of the Desert mm. Song Motel. And I think we can assume, although maybe it happened off screen, but there's some head trauma when he gets thrown out of the casino. When he's ah. wearing his new birthday orange shirt and he gets a little drunk at the table. His nose definitely takes some damage. Yeah, that was the headbutt at the biker bar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You old Glasgow kiss. Yeah. This is uh, somewhat of a love story, albeit... It, it is a love story, even though it ends with him dying, yes. So do we get a smooch? Smoochy, smoochy, smoochy! We actually get two I made note of. First is she kisses him the morning after they spend the first night together in her apartment, which is chaste, as we find out throughout the plot. And then she also smooch when he comes back after getting his nose busted at the biker bar. So not my first choice of smooching, but... Yeah. Yeah, that was blech. Um, okay. And the aforementioned uh, cars that Mr. Cage might enjoy, do we have a driving review from you? We, we do. And first and foremost, as I have warned the kids on the podcast before, do not drink and drive. However, even more so, do not drink while driving. So he picked that up, I think, from Arthur, because Deadly Moore's Arthur drinks from a bottle while driving a motor vehicle, and so does... Nick Cage's bed. Do not do that. His 93 BMW 525i says that he had a fair living at some point. That's not a car you, you would purchase. Well, being a screenwriter, maybe he... Yeah, he sold a script and he's able to get, uh, get that mm-hmm. car. And please stop at red lights, but also don't roll into pedestrians. Now, it advanced the plot here because it allowed him to meet Sarah. But as a general rule, he's a pretty crappy driver. Mm-hmm. All right, shall we go to the numbers? Let's go to the numbers. So before I head into the numbers, I will say that Nicolas Cage and the director Mike Figgis never got paid for making this film. Each was supposed to get $100,000, but the production company Lumiere Pictures claimed that the film never went into profit, despite grossing $32 million from a $3.5 million film. And it's odd that actors and writers don't like the producer. <laughs> Hmm. Exactly. We've heard this story before that they just say like, oh, well, we... Yeah, we made no money. We uh, had to pay for marketing Uh, and advertising. $30 million of coffee. Yeah, that's rough. It is included in the uh, American Film Institute's 2002 list of 400 movies nominated for the top 100 of greatest love story movies. Not sure I'd call it a great love story, but it is a good film. They loved each other in their own dysfunctional kind of way. They did. 
Right. So like I mentioned, this movie had a budget of three and a half million. Wiki says it only had $730,000 budget, but I did find that other reference and it did make worldwide $32 million. So I would say there's money around to pay your director and cast. It got a 7.5 out of 10 on IMDb. Critics love this movie yep, with yep. a 91% and audiences do too at 85%. It's just a uh, shy of two hours at 151. It is rated R obviously for the aforementioned abuse and uh, heavy drinking. I'm sure there we've got some F-bombs. So yep, it, yep. it got a hard R. Um, it's labeled as a drama romance and it was filmed in Las Vegas, Santa Monica, Burbank. It Received 32 wins and 31 nominations of them. Nick won the Oscar for leading actor. Elizabeth Shue was nominated, as was Figgis for best director and best screenplay. Nick won the Boston Society of Film Critics Award for best actor. Nick and Elizabeth won the Chicago Film Critics Association Award. Let's see the film. Elizabeth, Mike, Figgis, they they all won at the Dallas Fort Worth Film Critics. So many, many nominations and awards to this film. It is an award-winning film. You know, the the downside to this is, uh, I bet at least one producer somewhere now tells the actors, well, you know, Nick wasn't paid when he won the Oscar, so, you know, you just, uh, we'll pay you after you win the Oscar, right? <laughs> that would be horrible. That wouldn't it? The, like, I mean, that's probably not the worst trade-off ever, but just, yeah. Let's hope that doesn't happen. Well, let's hope, but people are, people are people. Yeah. So that concludes this episode. This will be our last episode of the month for this theme. So you have two days to put in your guess for what you think all of our films were. You could check out our social media for a list of the films we talked about or right there in your podcast app. You can email me at Christy at DodgeMediaProductions.com to submit your guess and never forget. Dodges never stop and neither do the movie. Thanks for listening to Dodge Movie Podcast with Christy and Mike Dodge of Dodge Media Productions. To find out more about this podcast and what we do, go to DodgeMediaProductions.com. Subscribe, share, leave a comment, and tell us what we should watch next. Dodges never stop and neither do the movies.